Well, good morning. How are we doing today, Free? All right, a few of us are doing fantastic. My name is Adrian. I'm one of the pastors here at Carnegie Free. Uh, so good to have you here today. If you're a newcomer here, we extend a special welcome to you, and I'd love to personally connect with you after the service. We are finalizing our series, God's Story, Our Story Today, and uh, we are about, what, eight, nine days away from Christmas right now, and so we have a little gift for a volunteer or two. Can I have a volunteer or two? Raise their hand. Have a gift here on stage. Okay, you two strapping young men here. Come on, come on get up here. These are my volunteers who are voluntold. <laughs> hey, buddy, how you doing? Mr. Kellen, and you, what's your name again? <laughs> Mr. Elijah. All right, so a little Christmas gift for you guys. It might take, it's very heavy, so uh, why don't you guys open it up? Uh, what is it? Typewriter. Hey, pull it out for them. They want to see it. Uh, congratulations. Merry Christmas. It's our typewriter. Yes, it's a... It's an old-fashioned computer just for you. Been featured prominently throughout God's story, our story, and it's really not for you, but thank you for volunteering. Okay, we will officially retire that typewriter unless perhaps its owner is still using it. I'm not sure if that skit, whatever it was, was any good, but thanks for indulging me. All right, we're going to jump right into our final episode here in God's story, our story, in Revelation chapter 21 and 22. I think you can find it right at the end of your Bible. The last two chapters is where we will be today. We've covered some 40 episodes in God's big story. And as we've done so, what we've tried to do is understand what is the overarching narrative of the Bible and how it would apply to our lives, where we see our own stories typewritten out even in God's story. And I pray that through this series, you've grown in knowledge of the Scriptures and application of the Scriptures for your own lives. Uh, in your insert today, you'll have this little bookmark that kind of summarizes 19 of the key events with icons related to those events in this overarching story. And you'll need this at the end of our worship service as we'll have a special element related to it as well. But this can be just a summary card that you go back to on a regular basis and you say, all right, I, I could tell someone some of what the Bible teaches. And my deep conviction as pastor is you can read the Bible for yourself. You can understand the Bible for yourself. You can teach the Bible to others yourself. That is my deep, deep conviction as a pastor, and that's a big part of the reason that we engaged in this series over the past year. I pray it's been helpful for you. We've seen a number of key unifying themes throughout this series, and there's five that I noted the very first sermon of this series, and we've looked at them again and again over this year, and I want to just remind you of them. We've seen again and again God's self-disclosure that He wants us to know Him. He wants us to know Him personally. He wants us to know what He's like. He wants us to know His character. He doesn't want to be distant and aloof from us. He invites us to know Him personally. Second, we've seen the devastating consequences of human failure, and you see that in just about every page of the Bible, don't you? The Bible is no stranger to human failure, which is actually an encouragement for us when we make mistakes of our own that 
God still isn't done with us. And even though we see human failure again and again in the pages of our lives and in the pages of God's story, we see the revelation of a Redeemer, Jesus Christ, who was way bigger than all of our failures. Way bigger than any failure that you have in your history. Even last week, whatever it might be, He's bigger and He forgives as we turn to Him. We've seen also the blessings of a life filled with faith and love. That Jesus does not invite us to uh, mere belief in Christ, but he invites us to discipleship. That we become disciples of Christ ourselves who are serious about walking with him. And as a result, we experience great joy in following him. There's a blessing to the life of faith and love for God. And then finally, we've looked at the expansion of the eternal kingdom of God. And this is a key unifying theme that we looked at many times in the New Testament, but also in the Old, and we'll see it for sure today in Revelation 21 and 22. Today we're going to talk about coming home, because that really is our final destination. As we come to the end of the Bible, we see this beautiful portrait of home. Raise your hand with me if you've ever been on a really long road trip where you could not wait to get home. Anyone else? Yeah, many of us have. Our family had one of these this past summer where we went away for 10 days, 10 or 11 days, and by the end of it, we just couldn't wait to get home. We went up to Niobrara and floated down that beautiful river and went to uh, South Dakota and the Black Hills and saw Rushmore and Crazy Horse and just a great, great time, planned on camping there, got rained out. Then went over to Yellowstone and camped there for a number of days. Stayed in a couple cheap hotels along the way. And by the time we got to our final destination, which was Scott's Bluff, we were initially very excited to see Scott's Bluff National Monument and Chimney Rock. But it was on our itinerary for day number 11. So Scott's Bluff, we look forward to seeing you some other day, some other year, because we were just ready for home. And so we slept there, and we quickly get on the gas, and we got home as quickly as we could because our backs were creaky, and our bodies were dirty, and we were ready for a shower and our own bed. We were longing for, for home. You know what I'm talking about. You've been on such a road trip. And the Bible ends that way for us realizing our longing for home. We've had this longing, and it will be fulfilled in the end, and the Bible gives us a portrait of what it will look like. Now, the last chapters in Revelation actually look remarkably similar to the first chapters in Genesis. At the beginning of the Bible, in Genesis 1 and 2, you have creation, and all that God has made is good. It is pristine. It is paradise. At the end of Revelation, the end of the Bible, Chapters 21 and 22, you see paradise restored, and all is right again. In Genesis chapter 3, you see the introduction of these three great enemies, sin and Satan and death, and at the end of the Bible, in Revelation 20, those three enemies are eradicated forever. Sin and Satan and death are no more. The beginning is paradise, and the end will be paradise yet again. It will be phenomenal. It'll be way better than chubby angels playing harps, sitting on clouds. It will not be boring. It will be the home that we have been longing for. Listen now to Revelation 21, verses 1 through 8. 
Then I saw, this is the Apostle John as he receives this revelation from Jesus. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. He who was seated in the throne said, I am making everything new. Then he said, write this down, for these words of mine are trustworthy and true. It's not a made-up story. These are trustworthy and true. He said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give water without cost from the spring of the water of life. Those who are victorious will inherit all this, and I will be their God, and they will be my children. But the cowardly, the unbelieving, the vile, the murderers, the sexually immoral, those who practice magic arts, the idolaters and all liars, they will be consigned to the fiery lake of burning sulfur. This is the second death. Would you pray with me? Oh, Father, I ask that you would teach us through this, your word. There are beautiful words in this, and there are challenging, painful words in this, and we invite you to instruct us. Give us open minds, God. Give us supple hearts, Lord. Prepare our hearts to receive your word and teach us about our final resting place in home with you. Through Christ we ask. Amen. Now this entire passage is about renewal. And different scholars that you will read will speak in different ways about what happens in the end. And basically, there's two summary conclusions to what happens here with the new heavens and the new earth. One group of scholars would say that God is going to take this earth and he's going to throw it into a ball of fire and it'll be no more. And he's going to recreate a new earth and a new heavens, new atmosphere that will be beautiful. And that's possible. The other group of scholars say, no, God uh, doesn't make bad stuff. God makes really good stuff. And people make it bad. But then God comes and he renews that which has gone wrong. And this is my belief. It's based on a number of different passages, including 1 Corinthians 15, well, which, see, which speaks about our resurrected bodies. And it speaks about some continuity with our, resurrected, with our earthly bodies that leads to transformation in which God will rise our body and give us new resurrected bodies that are similar yet different to the bodies we have here on this earth. So our bodies are sown perishable, but one day they'll be raised imperishable and incorruptible. They're sown in dishonor, one day they'll be raised in honor and in glory. So also Romans 8 speaks about the renewal of the earth. Well, when it says the whole creation groans with eager expectation for the sons and daughters of God, that's us, to be revealed at the end of time when he will make all things right and creation will be set free from its bondage to decay, I believe, again, it will be renewed. Once again, though, this comes out of my belief that God makes really, really good stuff. It decays, then he comes and he renews and he transforms. Now, I could be wrong. It could be the other view that I just noted, 
That's a common Christian view as well. Both sides can be supported by different scriptures. But my belief, again, is that God is going to renew what he has made here that has gone wrong. In the words of the great theologian Charles Barkley, I might be wrong, but I doubt it. I think that's how it's going to go down in the end. Now, there are a lot of things that are difficult to understand in the book of Revelation. Have you noticed? Okay, there's many things that it feels like Jesus has determined we are on a need-to-know basis, and He's determined we don't need to know. But there are other things in the book of Revelation that are really plain to us, and I want to share a few of those with you right now. First and foremost is this. The end will include renewed people in a renewed place with a renewed vision of the presence of God. And it will be profound. That will be our experience. And in the end, I promise you this, here's the cliff notes of Revelation, Jesus wins. Okay? That's the cliff notes. The battle is very real for us right now, and we battle against sin and Satan and death, and sometimes it feels like we lose, but in the end, Jesus wins. And in the end, I promise you, you will meet him face to face. And I promise you, the book of Revelation and the rest of the Bible makes very, very clear, you want to be on his side when you meet him face to face. Do you hear me? Okay, we have a renewal that is going to happen at the end, and we want to be on his side. And in the end, when we meet him face to face, all those whose sins have been forgiven by the blood of the Lamb, Jesus Christ, will be ushered into his presence where there is no more crying and no more pain and no more tears and no more mourning because death is no more. And the old order of things is gone. A new order of things has come. Now, how is he going to do this? He's going to do this by his love, because he loves you and he loves the world, and by his power and by his holiness. All of these come together at the very end of time. You cannot read the book of Revelation without noticing a very unsettling attribute of God, which is called wrath. You, you, you just can't do it. You can't get around it. And I used to really squirm when I'd read these passages and kind of apologize for God and kind of think of the wrath of God as being beneath his character in some way because we humans are so good at judging such things. But I've come to realize that humans in general follow one of two basic distortions about the character of God. Follow me now. One basic distortion that many people follow is God is all-powerful, and he is angry, and he is holy, but there is no love to his character. And believe it or not, there are many people from many cultures all over the world that believe that about God. There are many cultures that have a really difficult time believing that God would sympathize with us in our weaknesses, or he would take on our sins, that he would downsize from heaven to come to us in our need. There's many cultures that don't believe that, and there's many people who believe God to be some cosmic tyrant in the sky. Now, that's not exactly our problem in America, is it? In America, we are more likely to believe that God is like our cosmic chummy buddy, our doting grandpa in the sky more like this great Santa Claus, because we have been so influenced in America to believe that love 
always equals feelings. In America, we've been so distorted to believe that happiness always equals doing whatever I please. That we have a difficult time believing that God could be both completely holy and even angry at some of our, at all of our sins, and yet at the same time loving and wanting us to be completely His. Again, I struggle with this as a young Christian, but then I got to know uh, a couple named Rod and Jennifer. And Rod and Jennifer above became these good friends to Susie and me, and they were far advanced to us in our spiritual walk as we got to know them. And um, I learned from Rod about, uh, I don't know, probably, Three or four years after I got to know him, that six or seven years before, Rod went through the harrowing experience of losing his newborn baby and her leaving this earth after four months. And they knew that she would be born with a number of illnesses, and sure enough, she was, and she died four months later. And I see this remarkable man who maintains this spiritual vigor about him. And I said to him one day, Rod, how did you get through that? And how have you maintained such spiritual vigor over these years such that you are such a strong man of God today? I'll never forget what he said. He said, Adrian, I believe that in the end God will make all things right. He said, I believe in the justice of God. I believe in the righteousness of God. And I believe God will overturn the evil that we experienced when our baby Joy died, and one day we will see her again, and she will be renewed, and she will be right, and he will overturn every act of injustice in my life that has happened to me or that I have perpetrated. Wow. You know, it's not just tragedies like that. It's also the things that we do. The longer I live, the more convinced I am That evil doesn't go through nations or states, but through every human heart, including mine. And the longer I live, the more convinced I am that if God was to eradicate all sin from the world, that would mean eradicating me and you. You see, evil is so intertwined in every heart that if we were to eliminate evil, all of us would be eliminated. If God was to eliminate evil, all of us well, would be eliminated. So this is what he does in his grand plan. He offers his perfect son for our imperfection, that by the cross of Christ, the wrath of God would be absorbed by Jesus, and we would have the freedom and the love of God to live eternally with him, thereby satisfying both his anger and his holiness against sin, and his love for you and me because God takes no delight in the destruction of anyone. Now you have this long list here in chapter 21, verse 8, the cowardly, the unbelieving, and on and on it goes. And there's basically two choices for us. Either those will be paid for by the cross of Christ and we will receive God's love, or in the end, God will come with his justice And he will say, you didn't want any of my forgiveness. You didn't want my son the way he came. Okay, have it your way, but I will not bring that which is impure into the kingdom of heaven. And thereby, God maintains both his love and his holiness at the same time. My deep conviction is God wants you to come home. He wants you. He wants your family. 
He wants your friends to come home. He wants everyone from China and from Mexico and from Africa and from America to come home. He wants enemies to come home. Everyone, I believe, he wants to invite home, but not everyone will say yes to his invitation. Everyone is invited, but the end of Revelation tells us that not everyone will say yes to his invitation. And God is both kind enough and he is strong enough to say to us in the end, if you don't want the one that you were created for, if you want to hold on to your pride and your unbelief, I will say to you, okay, have it your way, even if you don't like that way. And those who say no thank you to God will be separated from God and from all that is good because God is the fountain for all that is good. All that is good in this world that we see, that both believers and unbelievers get access to today, will be separated from those who say no to his generous offer. And in his love and in his justice, he will not force his way on anyone. You see, in his first advent, God came as a sacrificial savior. But in his second advent, he is going to come as a victorious king. And the question is, will we say yes? Will we come home? Those words are not easy to say, but those are the clear words of Scripture. And I pray that you would say yes. We will be a renewed people in a renewed place without any spot or wrinkle, without any stain, with a renewed vision of the greatness of God, the presence of God. It's going to be awesome. Look at chapter 22 for a description of our renewed place. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, verse 1, as clear as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb down the middle of the great street of the city. On each side of the river stood the tree of life, bearing 12 crops of fruit, yielding its fruit every month. And the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be any curse. The throne of God and of the Lamb will be in the city, and His servants will serve Him. They will see His face, and His name will be on their foreheads. There will be no more night. They will not need the light of a lamp or the light of the sun, for the Lord their God will give them light, and they will reign forever and ever with Him. This place is going to be like a garden lover's dream. This tree of life that yields its crops each and every month. And yet at the same time, it's also going to be a place for the healing of the nations. People of every nation and tribe and tongue will be there. And at the same time, it's going to be brilliant in architecture. It's the new Jerusalem. Jerusalem is this glorious city. And there will be cities there and beautiful architecture and renewed culture there. It will be a place for healing and growth and learning. And it will not be boring. It will be glorious. Paradise lost will be paradise restored. Several weeks ago, we studied this topic of the kingdom of God. And remember, the kingdom of God, very simply, is the rule and the reign of God in the lives of men, women, and children. It's wherever you see what God wants done in the world being done. Do you look at something and you say, oh, that's the will of Jesus. That is the kingdom of God. And when you turn here to Revelation 22, you see the kingdom of God fully manifest as all evil and all sin and Satan himself are expelled finally. And the result is, there are no more forest fires. 
There are no more hurricanes. There are no more parents burying their children. There's no more sin. There's no more of my anger. There's no more of my impatience. There's no more lust. There's no more greed. None of that. Like, I mean, can you imagine how glorious this will be for us? Today we see through a glass darkly. One day we will see face to face as in a mirror. We will see the form of the Lord. We will be in the glorious presence of God and we will be lit up by his light. My friends, the very center of heaven will be the presence of God. So as glorious as it will be that we'll have resurrected bodies, that won't be the center. As amazing it will be that there will be a resurrected earth with no pollution and no hurricanes and no forest fires or any of that, that will not be the center either. As wonderful as it will be to see our old family members who have died in Christ, even that will not be the center. The center will be the presence of God, the light of Christ, which is more powerful than any power we've ever seen, more beautiful than anything we've ever seen, more radiant, more holy, and with him we will grow and we will learn and we will serve and we will develop for the centuries and the millennia and for the ages to come. And it won't get boring because there will be these renewed cities and we'll have renewed responsibilities and we'll be serving with God and getting the good water from him and enjoying his presence and enjoying one another. And the invitation is, If you are thirsty, come. Whoever is hungry, come. Whoever is longing for their eternal home, would you please receive Christ and come? Father, we thank you that your story begins in those earliest pages of Genesis with beauty and glory and perfection. And you in no way compromise your character as you assure an ending of beauty and glory and perfection. And I praise you, God, that you are unwilling to sacrifice your love nor are you willing to sacrifice your glorious character, but you preserve them together in Christ and you draw us to him through the cross. And while we battle today, we remember that there will be a day that Christ will return again in glory to judge the living and the dead and in the end, love wins out. So we don't understand it all, Lord God, but we say, we we look forward to that day that you're going to make everything right. We say we are thirsty. We long for you. Would you prepare us for the bride who will come in glory? Come, Lord Jesus, come. May it be in Christ's name. God's people say, amen.
For everything that was written in the past was written to teach us, so that through the endurance taught in the scriptures and the encouragement they provide, we might have hope. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. And God said, let there be light. He separated light from all that dark matter in the universe, and God saw that it was good. He gathered the water and the lands and saw that it was good. He produced the most beautiful flowers and fruits and saw that it was good. He set the stars and the moon and the sun in the sky and it was good. God created the great creatures of the sea and every living thing with which the water teems and that moves about in it according to their kinds and every winged bird according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. Then God said, Let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. God had created a beautiful world and filled it with glorious, diverse creatures. Of all his creation, he singled out two humans to build a relationship with, Adam and Eve. These two people were blessed to share this paradise with God and with each other so why would they want anything else? Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? You will not certainly die, for God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye, and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband, who was with her, and he ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they realized they were naked. The tragic accounts of the sin of Adam and Eve are echoed in later stories of hardship and tragedy for their children and their children's children. As people began to populate the globe, humanity's legacy of hate, anger, murder, and deception play out as people begin to neglect their relationship with God. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. So God said to Noah, I'm going to put an end to all people for the earth is filled with violence because of them. I am sure, surely going to destroy both them and the earth. Everything on earth will perish. But I will establish my covenant with you, and you will enter the ark, you and your sons and your wife and your sons' wives with you. The earth recovered from this great flood, 
animal and plant life flourished and Noah's family repopulated the earth. The cycle of life began to continue. But as time passed, the people continued to rebel against God and sought to make a name for themselves rather than seek God's glory. It was there, at Babel, that God confused their language and scattered them over the face of the whole earth. Sin continued to break relationships between God and people and between each other and drive them further and further away. It was time for God's next move, time to build a nation that would become the cultural and ethnic home to, well, that part of the story is yet to come. The Lord had said to Abram, Go from your country, your people, and your father's household to the land I will show you. I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I will curse. And all the peoples on earth will be blessed through you. Look up at the sky and count the stars, if indeed you can count them. So shall your offspring be. Abraham believed the Lord, and he credited it to him as righteousness. God's story of promise and prosperity moves from Abraham to his son Isaac to his son Jacob. But this family's story is far from over. Jacob's twelve sons, in a moment of jealous anger, sold their youngest brother Joseph into slavery to Egypt. Joseph faced many hardships in his time in Egypt, yet he trusted in God's bigger plan and was strengthened to rise up from slave to a position of power in the land of Egypt. With this new position, Joseph, who was a savior before the savior, was able to save his family from drought and famine and brought them to live with him in the land of Egypt. Now Joseph and all his brothers and all that generation died but the Israelites were exceedingly fruitful. They multiplied greatly, increased in numbers, and became so numerous that the land was filled with them. Then a new king, to whom Joseph meant nothing, came to power in Egypt. Look, he said to his people, the Israelites have become far too numerous for us. So they put slave masters over them to oppress them with forced labor. And the Lord said to Moses, I have indeed seen the misery of my people in Egypt. I have heard them crying out because of their slave drivers, and I am concerned about their suffering. So I have come down to rescue them from the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of the land and into a good and spacious land. After the death of Moses, the servant of the Lord, the Lord said to Joshua, Now then, you and all these people, get ready to cross the Jordan River into the land I am about to give them, to the Israelites. I will give you every place where you set your foot, as I promised Moses. No one will be able to stand against you all the days of your life. As I was with Moses, so I will be with you. I will never leave you, nor forsake you. 
Be strong and courageous because you will lead these people to inherit the land I swore to their ancestors to give them. After that whole generation had been gathered to their ancestors, another generation grew up who knew neither the Lord nor what he had done for Israel. They forsook the Lord, the God of their ancestors, who had brought them out of Egypt. They followed and worshiped various gods of the peoples around them. Then the Lord raised up judges who saved them out of the hands of their enemies. Yet they would not listen to their judges but prostituted themselves to other gods and worshiped them. In those days, Israel had no king. Everyone did as they saw fit. The Israelites continued their pattern of spiritual compromise during this sad period of their history. Enter Ruth, a young Moabite woman, into God's story. Ruth was a loyal, determined, and bold woman who became a part of the lineage of King David. More important, she was God's choice to illustrate his providence in the everyday mundane details of people's lives. God's fulfillment of his plan of redemption was still unfolding. God gave them judges until the time of Samuel the prophet. Then the people asked for a king, and he gave them Saul, son of Kish, of the tribe of Benjamin, who ruled for forty years. After removing Saul, he made David their king. God testified concerning him, I have found David, son of Jesse, a man after my own heart. He will do everything I want him to do. But King Solomon did evil in the eyes of the Lord. He did not follow the Lord completely as David his father had done. Although he had forbidden Solomon to follow other gods, Solomon did not keep the Lord's command. So the Lord said to Solomon, Since this is your attitude and you have not kept my covenant and my decrees which I commanded you, I will most certainly tear the kingdom away from you and give it to one of your subordinates. God had chosen Israel to be a unique nation that would be a blessing to other nations around the world. But rather than blessing, they chose to be like everyone else and asked God for a human king to lead them. These kings would lead Israel from blessing back to the continual pattern of neglecting God and what he had called them to be as a nation. Eventually, the house divided, civil war ensued, and the kingdom split into two separate nations. The two nations, now Israel and Judah, would be invaded by Assyria and Babylon and go into exile for the next several hundred years. Israel had neglected God's heart for worship, justice, and his heart for reaching the world. Yet God's heart is most clearly seen for his people when those people seem to be furthest from him. It's in this time of exile that he would send prophets to his people to call them back to the heart of God. He has shown you, O mortal, what is good 
And what does the Lord require of you? To act justly and to love mercy and to walk humbly with your God. I want you to show love, not offer sacrifices. I want you to know me more than I want burnt offerings. God had promised the people that someday he would bring them back to their land. And as promised, the people began to return to their home. Returning from exile would be a time of renewal for God's people, as Ezra and Nehemiah took a serious interest in making sure God's law was heard and followed again, and the walls of the city were rebuilt. Hundreds of years would pass, and God's people would continue to experience social and political upheaval. When the set time had fully come, God spoke again. This time, the people could see the personified, gracious, compassionate, and loving God right before their eyes. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. The Word became flesh and made His dwelling among us. We have seen His glory, the glory of the one and only Son, who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. Out of his fullness we have received grace in place of grace already given. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Through Christ came the fulfillment of a new and better promise. Throughout the Old Testament, God's people would continually fail to obey him and keep the covenant they promised to follow. But God is always faithful to his promises from Abraham to Moses to David, and now to Christ. The pinnacle of God's story is now on the horizon. Christ Jesus, who, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So where, O oh death, is your victory? Where, O oh death, is your sting? Thanks be to God. He gives us a victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, because through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit who gives life has set you free from the law of sin and death. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies because of his spirit who lives in you. The spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. By the power of God, the church is born. God's Spirit is present in His church, bonding our community as a family and fueling us for the cause of Christ. 
God is working to fulfill His mission through the church, through you and through me, to bring redemption to the world. As you come to Him, the living stone, you also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. You are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. And you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. As the story nears its end, God's message rings out loud and clear. I have opened the door. I have made a way. Come to me and have life. God's word is true, and he has fulfilled all of his promises. The good news has gone out into the world, bringing forth an incredible wake of transformation to all cultures and peoples. As God fulfills his mission through his church, we await with obedience and expectation for Christ to come again. He will restore all that is broken and mangled by sin. But the question remains, how will you respond to his free gift of life? No longer will there be any curse. The throne of God and of the Lamb will be in the city, and his servants will serve him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads. There will be no more night. They will not need the light of a lamp or the light of the sun. For the Lord God will give them light, and they will reign forever and ever. Look, I am coming soon. My reward is with me. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. The Spirit and the Bride say, come. And let the one who hears say, come. Let the one who is thirsty, come. And let the one who wishes take the free gift of the water of life. Amen.